Um, so let me just let you know that this service is going to unfold a little differently than what we normally do um, because our normal sort of routine or pattern is that we do a message um, and then we do a bunch of songs or we do a bunch of songs and then we do a message. And this morning they're going to be interspersed. So the message that I'm going to give you through God's word, it's going to come in three parts. So I'm going to give a part of the message, walk through a part of the passage, and then the band is going to come out and lead us in a song so that we can have a chance to respond. And then I'll come back out for another part of the message, and the band will come back out as, as a song after, and then we'll do that a third time. And part of the hope for this is that we can cultivate that when we hear God's word, we respond to God's word. We don't simply walk out saying, I guess I'll consider that. We respond in the moment. And the other reason we're doing it is because the specific areas that we're going to cover this morning in the passage, they can be things that are really hard for us to deal with. They can be things that that either we want to just not talk about, or they can be things that that we want to sort of keep in a technical category apart from our, our spiritual walk with God. And responding in worship is part of our hope to say, you know what, the questions we're going to be talking about here are not just technical questions or organizational questions. They're spiritual questions. Um, And if you want to open up in your Bible now to where we'll be, where we're going to be, we're we're in the Sermon on the Mount, so we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. And in this passage, there's sort of three parts. We didn't just make up a three-point thing. There's really kind of three parts to this. But the parallel, the theme that carries through all these three parts is that Jesus is talking about what life looks like if he is king over our money and our possessions, Money and possessions are difficult things for us to talk about. A lot of times we sort of want God out of our business when it comes to those. Jesus, in these passages, is going to be talking about what you could say are money problems. Now just think for a second. If you thought of the whole idea of having money problems or money trouble, what you would probably automatically assume is that the trouble is that you don't have enough. For most of us, if we were to say to somebody, I have money trouble, the assumption would be, oh, you don't have enough money to pay your bills or to do the things that you feel like you should be able to do. That is money trouble, totally. But Jesus is going to be talking primarily about another kind of money trouble. There's money trouble when we don't have enough, and there's money trouble when we have a lot. There's a certain kind of temptation that comes along with poverty, And that temptation tends to be that that it's more tempting to steal things or to lie to get things or to manipulate. There's also a temptation that comes along with prosperity. And that temptation is to make our lives all about what we have. And Jesus is really going to be focused more on the problems that come along with prosperity, which for the 21st century United States seems like an appropriate thing to talk about. And the problem that comes when we have a lot, and this will be a big thing that Jesus talks about, is that the more things you own, the more likely they are to own you. The problem is not that we have possessions. The problem is not that we have money. The problem is not even that we we have nice things or enjoyable things. The problem is that money often ends up calling the shots. When we turn from enjoying the money that God has given us towards loving money and being dependent upon it and serving it, we end up in a situation where we can't follow Jesus in the way that he's leading us. Jesus is meant to be master. The whole whole Sermon on the Mount is about what life looks like if Jesus is the king. So what we're going to talk about is what does life look like if Jesus is the king? 
over our possessions. And what we'll see in this passage is that when Jesus is the king of our possessions, this impacts our actions, our attitude, and our allegiances. And and that will cover the three parts that we go through. We'll talk about our actions, we'll talk about our attitude, and we'll talk about our allegiance. And so we'll start with the actions, and this is where we'll walk into the passage. And Jesus asks a question in each of these sections. And basically, the question that he asks in verses 19 through 21 is, where are you storing? So let me read verses 19 and 20. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. So the interesting thing about this, Jesus talks about storing up. So the question is, all right, where are you storing? Or if you wanted to use a more evocative word, the, the, the whole idea of storing here has the idea of stockpiling. He says, all right, where are you stockpiling? And his assumption isn't either you're storing up or you're not storing up. His assumption is you're storing up. But you've got two options for where you're storing up treasure. You could be stockpiling treasure here on earth, or you could be stockpiling treasure in heaven. Now listen to what he says about it, going back through the passage. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. So let's just, as you think about treasures on earth, it might not be a big jump to start to think about what might be treasures on earth. And even with this, it's not necessarily talking about material possessions. That'd be the obvious place to go. To say, if I'm looking to stockpile treasures on earth, that's probably going to be a real big bank account and a lot of stuff. And maybe not just a lot of stuff, but a lot of nice stuff. The nicest house, the nicest car, the nicest clothes. So I have nice stuff. It can be possessions. It's not necessarily just possessions. Some of you might say, well, well, the thing that I'm stockpiling is my physical appearance. Um, And so, you know, the beauty that I have right now, the physical beauty, that's what my life is sort of focused on, on on maintaining that and, and just kind of playing that up. Or it might not be physical beauty. It might be some sort of fame or reputation. That you say, all right, well, I'm I'm trying to get a great reputation in my work, or I'm trying to get my name out there more. You're trying to build something. Either way, what carries through all of these things is the idea that you are looking to store up a temporary treasure, a very here and now treasure. And the powerful thing about Jesus' words is that he doesn't say, don't store up treasures here on earth. That's immoral. He says, don't store up treasures here on earth. That's foolish. He says, where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Um, And some of you might be used to a different translation where it says, where moths and rust destroy. The Greek word here that's used either for moths or for vermin is actually just the Greek word eating. It's basically saying the stuff here on earth that you store up, it's going to get eaten. So it might get eaten by moths. It might get eaten by rust. It might get eaten by rodents. Eventually, if you're storing up physical beauty or your physical health, you know what's going to happen to you? You're going to get eaten eventually. I'm not talking about Jurassic World eaten. I'm talking about going into the ground and worms are going to eat you. This is a powerful thing. Jesus is saying you're storing up stuff that's very temporary. And not only that, but especially for the first century Israelites, they didn't have banks to put their money in. So the idea, if they had a lot of money, they had to hide it somewhere in their home or go and bury it somewhere. They were very vulnerable to theft. 
So Jesus says, why would you spend your time? Why would you focus your lives around storing up treasures in the here and now when you realize how perilous that is? Those treasures are vulnerable. And today, we know that that's true also. We know that even if you have a whole bunch of money in the stock market, something could happen tomorrow and that could just be gone. We've all had possessions that we've really, really loved. Maybe a car that you've really, really loved. And now you look at that car and you say, it's not what it was. That dress isn't what it was. Or my physical appearance isn't what it was. And if you've been paying attention to the news at all lately, you know that no matter how much fame you have, it can all be gone with one bad tweet. (laughs) Earthly treasures are perilous. They can be gone in a moment. So Jesus doesn't simply say those things are bad. He says, why would you do that? Why would you spend your time stockpiling things that are going to fade? Instead, he says, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And the idea here isn't simply that these would be rewards that we would get in heaven, although that would be included in there. The idea here is that he's saying, focus on things that are eternal. Focus on things that are of eternal value. So focus your attention on your relationship with God. Focus your attention on using your money and your resources to help people who are in need, to help people who don't know Jesus, to get the word of God, to unreached people groups. Use what you have to store up eternal treasure instead of being focused on the here and now. About a month ago, I get to go, Pastor Troy and I got to go to Kenya as, as part of, amongst other things, getting to visit with the Ilchamus people who were supporting, getting to visit with some of our missionaries. Um, and it was a really great trip. And at the end of it, as we were headed back into the airport, we stopped um, to get some souvenirs. So we stopped at one of those kind of markets where you go to a whole bunch of stores. And I just changed, I took $60, changed in, into Kenyan money so I could buy some stuff for my family. And so I went through, I got something for my wife, I got something for each of my kids, and I kind of got all the stuff that, you know, I got something for myself. Um, and then I realized I'd only spent like half the money that I pulled out. And the clock was ticking. And we were about to head to the airport. I just realized, when I get back to the United States, you know how much good this Kenyan money is going to be to me? This is going to do me no good. So I went right back to the vendors, which they loved. They're like, oh, back again? More stuff? And, and as quickly as I could, I, I looked to just use all of the money that I could, as much as possible, because I didn't want to take useless money back to the United States with me. I wanted to trade it in for stuff that would last once I got back. Here's what Jesus is saying. God has blessed you. And in the United States, this is true of us. God has blessed us with money and resources. All of that stuff is going to fade away. You can't take it with you. There used to be a lot of royalty that was buried with their money. But you know what never happened? Nobody ever walked into one of their tombs and found them gazing at their jewelry. You can't take it with you. Eventually, it's going to be worthless. So Jesus is saying, while it's still worth something, why wouldn't you leverage it for something that's going to last? Why wouldn't you use it to to give to people who are poor so that their lives are impacted? Why wouldn't you use it to give to the church and to give to missions so that people can have the word of God? Why wouldn't you use a fading treasure to trade it in for an eternal treasure? 
Then Jesus kind of sums up this part in verse 21 with an adage. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Which could mean one of two different things. It could be just Jesus simply saying, um, wherever your money is, wherever your treasure is, wherever your focus is, that reveals what's going on in your heart, which is totally true. What you spend your focus on, your money on, your life on, that, that reveals what's going on in your heart. But it seems like Jesus is actually saying something slightly different. It seems like what he's saying is, wherever your treasure is, your heart will become attached to that. And if you've ever invested in the stock market, you've experienced this, especially if you've picked a specific stock. So let's say you say, all right, I'm going to invest in this stock. You don't know anybody at the company. You don't know anybody who works there. If the, if the company went under, it wouldn't really impact your life. But suddenly after you've invested, what are you doing all the time? You're checking on it. You want to see how is it doing? You know why your heart became attached to that company? Because your treasure became attached to that company. And I think part of what Jesus is telling us is, is for some of us that are saying, all right, this is good, and I believe that it's true, but, but ultimately, here's the deal. My heart isn't really in it. I just got to admit, my heart isn't really in it. I wish I cared more about the poor. I just, my heart's not in it. I wish I cared more about the Ilchamus people. My, my heart's not really in it. Like, I'd like it to happen, and maybe God will change my heart, and then I'll start giving, but my heart's not in it. If you look at it and say, my heart's not really in it, here's what I think Jesus is advising you to do. Start putting your treasure then there, and then you know what's going to happen? Your heart's going to be in it. It's not you doing something hypocritical. It's you saying, you know what? Even if I'm not feeling it, I'm going to trust God enough that his eternal reality is the real thing, and that all these things around me are simply fading. At the end of the day, what Jesus is inviting us to do to look at the world through the eyes of faith and to believe that what he is offering us, the rewards that we will get for acts of faith, especially when it comes to our stuff, will be better than anything we can get for ourselves here. Uh, I'm going to pray for us and the band is going to come out and they're going to lead us. We're we're actually, we're not going to sing along to this one. This will be a song that they sing for us that's going to point us to what it looks like when we embrace the idea that the reward that God gives, the eternal treasures, truly are better than anything that we could stockpile for ourselves. So Father, we pray because we know our hearts are fickle. We know that we're easily distracted with the things that our eyes see. I pray that you keep us from being sidetracked with treasures that simply fade away. That you'd allow us to see the benefits of faith and the benefits that come when we trust you and store up eternal treasures. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus asks us the question about our actions. He says, where are you storing? Where are you stockpiling treasure? Now in verses 22 and 23, he's going to ask us a question about our attitude. And the question he's going to ask us is, what are you seeing? Uh, I'll just tell you before we get into this, this is the trickiest part of the passage. I mean, it's a confusing analogy that Jesus gives. First of all, because it's, we just have to ask the question, what's happening here? And then we got to ask a second question, what does this have to do with what we're talking about? So I'll read through and then try to explain what he's doing here. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. 
if the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And so let's just start with the question, all right, before we even get into the implications of this analogy, let's just get into what he's saying. And what he's saying seems to be pretty straightforward. All right, the way that you have illumination is through the eyes. The way that you understand reality is through the eyes. The way that you step over something in your way is that you saw it and so you didn't trip over it. This is the way that things work. And this is why, you know, I mean, if you, if you bang your finger with a hammer, that, that's a real bummer. But if you bang your finger with a hammer, that's not going to make you run into a wall. If your eyes are bad, your view of reality is not accurate. And so he talked about the significance of our eyes. If your eyes are healthy, you're going to be able to see clearly. If your eyes are unhealthy, you're not going to be able to see clearly. So, so, all right, so, so we can say, all right, I've got that part. I understand the basic idea. But what is this doing in this passage? And it probably, we, we should start, I'm going to say, we should start with the assumption this has something to do with money. And the reason we should start with that assumption is because the verses right before it that we just went over had to do with money. Don't store up treasures here on earth, store up, store up treasures in heaven. The verse right after it has to do with money, where Jesus says you can't serve two masters, you can't serve God and money. So it's possible this is just a random standalone, but probably that this ties in somehow with what Jesus is wanting us to see when it comes to money and possessions. And there's another clue that we wouldn't get in English, but the Greek helps us out here. And that's that the word that Jesus uses for healthy, when he says, if your eye is healthy, that word healthy is very frequently used and translated as generous. And the word for unhealthy is very frequently translated as stingy. In fact, there's a parable, an infuriating parable, probably Jesus' most infuriating parable, later on in Matthew chapter 20 when he tells the parable about all these workers that work different amounts of time and they all get the same payment. Some of you are nodding your heads. You're like, I hate that parable. That's frustrating. So unfair. Um, but, but what happens, there's this moment at the end, and, and you can go and read it later on in Matthew if, if you want to know why it's a great parable and why it's frustrating. Um, so you've got these workers who have worked 12 hours, and then you've got these workers who have worked one hour, and they all get paid the same. And then, when the 12-hour workers start to grumble and complain about this setup, the owner of the vineyard says to them, why is your eye, and, and literally, if we were going with this, he'd say, why is your eye unhealthy about this? And the way it's normally translated is, why is your eye envious? You're dissatisfied, not with your pay, but you're dissatisfied with the fact that you don't have more than these other people. An unhealthy eye is an eye that's constantly comparing itself to what it sees around it. This is what we sometimes call envy. This is what we sometimes call covetousness. It's the idea of looking at the world and saying, the only way I can be happy, the only way I can really be satisfied is if I have just a little bit more, if I have enough stuff. Or normally, and, and this is something why, why I think it's so healthy to go overseas. Um, it was so healthy for me to, to go to Kenya this, this year and then Haiti last year. Is that, and it, I, I promise you, this is still happening. Um, after being overseas those two times and being back, still, every morning when I take a hot shower, I'm saying, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus. Every time I have a cold glass of ice water right out of my fridge, I say, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus. Every day I take that long walk 
from my car parked at the curb of my house to my house and open the door and get blasted with air conditioning, I think, thank you, Jesus. You realize when you go overseas, especially to a third world country, you realize just how ridiculously well we have it here. I mean, it's, it's cartoonish. We are all living in Disneyland. We, we are all living better than most royalty throughout history and even than some royalty right now today. And we have air conditioning, we have clean water, we have transportation. Most of us have homes, our own home to live in. I mean, it, it, is, it is incredible what we live in. And at the same time, how many of us look around and say, I'd be happy if I just had a little more. I mean, I'm in an apartment. When am I going to get in a house? Well, I'm in a house, but really it's kind of a starter house. When are we going to get in the next house? I've got a car, but when am I going to get a new car? We've got money in the bank account, but when are we going to really be set with retirement? This idea of just constantly chasing, this is the unhealthy eye. Let me read to you some verses from Ecclesiastes. I think this is incredibly insightful wisdom on this whole idea, on what happens when we chase. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 10 through 12. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? And then finally, verse 12, the sleep of the laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. Here in Ecclesiastes, the author is saying, the more that you have, the more you could lose. And the more you could lose, the more worried you are about what you could lose. I promise you, 10 years ago, when we had the financial crisis, there were not a lot of homeless people crying about that. There were a bunch of rich people deeply concerned with it. We are skewed in what we think is normal. Jesus says, your eye is unhealthy. If you're looking, and this even draws back to the passage right before. It says, your eye is unhealthy. You're not viewing reality accurately. If you look around and what you see is a world in which you need to store up all that you can get for right now, have all the fun that you can have right now, have all the pleasure you can have right now, and maximize all your possessions for right now. You are viewing the world in an unhealthy way if that's what you see when you open your eyes. But if you open your eyes and you say, you know what? God's given me stuff. In fact, kind of a lot of stuff compared to most people. God's given me a lot of stuff. And you know what I could do with that? I could use that for eternal benefit. I could use the stuff that's fading and that's not going to be around in a few years. And I could use it to make an impact on the world. I could use it to give it to poor people. I could use it to benefit family members that are having a harder time. I can use this to to help get mission teams out. I can use this for things that will last forever. That's when Jesus says, if you're seeing the world that way, you're seeing the world clearly. I don't think there's a single one of us in this room that would say, yep, I'm greedy. Yep, I'm covetous. That's me. We we don't think that we are. But when we pause to say, am I determining my happiness or satisfaction in life, not only with what I have, but with what I have in comparison to those around me, you're chasing an endless 
wind that you're never gonna catch up with. What Jesus is really inviting us to do is he's inviting us to adopt God's grid for the world. He's saying, see the world clearly. And seeing the world clearly means you see the world as God sees the world. You're putting on his glasses and you're seeing the world as it truly is. And Andy's gonna come out and he's gonna lead us in a song that points us towards this reality, that points us and gives us just a glimpse of what life looks like if we adopt God's way of viewing the world. Let me pray for us. Father, we don't wanna get caught in envy. We don't want to get caught in this trap where we're constantly reaching for the next thing and dissatisfied with what you've given us. Father, we pray that you open our eyes to see clearly. We pray that you keep us from being blinded by stuff and by the constant chasing of what's next. Help us to see what's eternal with the eyes that you give us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Jesus begins by talking to us about our actions and by asking the question, where are you storing? Where are you stockpiling treasure? And is it in a place that's going to last or is it treasure that's going to fade? And then he asks us about our attitude and asks us the question, what are you seeing? Are you seeing a world that demands that you stock up for right now? Are you seeing a world that demands that you use every chance that you have to get more? Are you seeing a world that God has set up where he's given you resources that are meant to be used for eternal purposes? And now we get to the last question. And the last question that he's going to ask us in verse 24 is the question, who are you serving? Let's go back. Sorry. Um, he's going to ask the question, who are you serving? This is just one verse, but, the, but this is really going to get down to it for us. We're really going to get a chance to dig in and try to make sure that we grasp the full message of what Jesus is saying. So in verse 24, we talk about allegiance. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, what I'm about to say might sound a little bit irreverent. But let me just say, there's not a lot of times in my life that I thought Jesus was wrong. But this passage for a long time was one of those where I'm like, all right, I know this is the Bible, I know this is God's Word, I know Jesus said this, and Jesus is the Son of God, but I'm pretty sure he's wrong about this. Like, I'm pretty sure you can serve two masters. Life is not made up of a whole bunch of just binary choices. There are lots of things that we can do where we can do two things at the same time. Um, but one of the, the dinner table things that my family does is uh, we, we take turns um, asking each other questions. So, so the game will sort of be, somebody will start and they'll ask one person a question and then somebody else will get to ask somebody else. And we'll go around until everybody's asked and answered a question. And the questions have kind of turned into questions along the lines of, if you could only watch one movie for the rest of your life, <laughs> if you could only read one book for the rest of your life, or if you could only eat one kind of food for the rest of your life, what would it be? And to me, the, the funny thing is watching sometimes with my sons where, you know, so I'll, I'll ask one of them, if you could only eat one food for the rest of your life, what would it be? How they agonize over the answer. <laughs> And they're just like, oh, is it pizza or is it burgers? I really like pizza and I really like burgers. I don't know if I can decide. And, and after a little while, as this agonizing has gone on, I just say to them, now you realize no one's going to hold you to this. 
Like I've set up for you a false choice. That, that, that's silly. You don't actually have to choose between pizza and burgers. You know, you can have pizza one day and burgers the next. It, it's a false choice. And that's what it almost seems like to Jesus that, to me right now where I'm saying, is this really true? Is it really true that, that you can't do both of these things? There's a lot of times in life that we can't do two things and they don't come into conflict and, and mean that we can only do one. Um, for, for another example, I, I like sports, as some of you know. I like sports. I love the Dodgers. Here's something. I love the Dodgers, and I love the Lakers. And that's not a problem, because the Dodgers play baseball. The Lakers play basketball, in case you're not a sports fan. They're never going to play each other. It's not a problem. I, I can be fans of both. Um, some of you might even think, well, well, I'm a fan of the Dodgers and the Angels, which is a little harder, but it's like, all right, well, that kind of works. They, they both play baseball, but the Dodgers are in the National League. The Angels are in the American League. They don't play each other that much. Um, I don't know why you'd want to be a fan of both, but you could technically be a fan of both. But if you were to say, I'm a Dodger fan and I'm a Giants fan, that doesn't really work. You could be one or the other, and you could say, like, well, no, there are lots of times. I, I watch the Giants, and they're playing, well, the, the Giants are playing the, you know, Brewers, and I, I root for the Giants, and the Dodgers are playing the Diamondbacks, and I root for the Dodgers. It's not a problem. Well, the problem is that those two teams every year are both competing for the playoffs against each other. And on top of that, every year they play each other 19 times. You're not going to be able to give your allegiance to both teams. You're going to have to choose where your true allegiance lies. I say that just to illustrate, all right, there are times that, you know, you don't have to choose between these two kinds of foods. You, you could eat both of them. But there are also times in life that we recognize I can't have my allegiance to these two different things because they are so in conflict with each other that I'll eventually have to choose one. And Jesus is saying that serving God and serving money are so in conflict with each other that you will have to choose one. To the point that he says, you'll hate the one and you'll serve the other. You'll despise the one and you'll be devoted to the other. Which again, it's, it's strong language. And you think, well, do I have to hate the other one? The, the thing that Jesus is setting up is he is saying, ultimately, you will reject one in favor of the other. Hate is a strong way of him saying, you will reject one. You'll say, all right, I no longer have allegiance here. I have allegiance here. So if you're saying, I'm going to serve God and I'm going to serve money, eventually you'll come to the point that you'll have to say, nope, I'm despising money, I'm not listening anymore, and I'm serving God. Or you're going to say, you know what, God kind of gets a shaft, I'm not going to listen to him anymore, I'm just going to serve money. They come into conflict to the point. Now, some clarifications here are probably helpful. Um, I think one of the most misquoted, if not the most misquoted verse in the Bible, is when people say that the Bible says money is the root of all evil. Money is not the root of all evil. The Bible doesn't say money is the root of all evil. If you want to look it up later, 1 Timothy chapter 6, the Apostle Paul says, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And people that go after it, people that are desiring it, they end up in painful situations. The problem is not money. Money is just a thing. We, we all have money. It's good to have money. There's nothing wrong with money. Money is what we use to trade with each other. The problem is not money. The problem is the love of money. And here Jesus is saying the problem isn't money. The problem is serving money. And when you serve something, especially in the context of the first century here, when you serve something, you're making the assumption that that thing is your master. 
I think part of the beauty of what Jesus brings up in this passage is the idea that he's not simply saying, giving us this oppressive command, don't pay attention to money. He's saying, I want to set you free from the tyranny of serving money. This came up in the Ecclesiastes passage. Hey, if you're after money, you never have enough. And then there's more people that, that, that eat what you get. And, and then you just, you don't get good sleep because you're too worried about it. Money, like any other master, has demands. And if you don't follow through on those demands, you don't get the reward. You eventually will have to choose between serving God and serving money. Now, now, here's the difficulty. Um, if I was just to ask, I'm not asking right now, but if I was to ask the question, all right, raise your hand if you're serving money. None of us would raise our hands. This is a difficult thing. I already mentioned this is a difficult thing with greed. There's a great passage in Luke chapter 12 where a man comes to Jesus, and we don't know the full story, but he says, tell my brother to split the inheritance with me. So he feels cheated because of his inheritance. And Jesus basically says, not interested. I don't care about your inheritance. And then Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, be on your guard against greed. And I always have this imaginary thing that goes on that, that didn't really happen, but I imagine it happening. And the imaginary conversation is that this guy who asked for the inheritance said, who said anything about greed? I don't, I don't have a greed problem. I have an inheritance problem. You need to fix my inheritance problem and then I'll be fine. And Jesus' evaluation was, you don't have an inheritance problem. You have a greed problem. I don't think there's a person in here that would say, I serve money and money is my master. We are blind to our own greed because we can always point to somebody else that's doing it worse than us. So, so let me ask some questions. I mean, I'm going to put three questions up on the screen and just sort of ask some questions that may help us determine what it would look like if we were serving money. So question number one, am I willing to lie or manipulate in order to get more money? Am I willing to fudge something on my taxes Am I willing to manipulate my boss so that I get that promotion? What am I willing to do in order to get further ahead so that I have more money, more status, more stuff? And if you look at your life and say, well, yeah, I have been willing to compromise in order to get more. When you do those things, you're serving money as your master. A second question, is my work keeping me from having time for the church for my family, or for God's calling for me. Now, admittedly, this is a difficult one because work is not a bad thing. We, we all work, or, or at least in, in each family, you, you need to work, you need to do things in order to bring in money. So work is not bad, but we've got to pause and say, all right, are we chasing? And what are we chasing when we're at work? And are you in a situation where you're saying, well, we've got enough to live on, but I keep working so that I can get ahead, so that we can get more, and I am unavailable for things that God might want to do in my life because of how much I've given myself to work. And I'll just even throw in there, I, I put work up here, but maybe it's not work. Maybe it's activities. Maybe you have a young family and you say, you know what, we, we just don't have enough time for what the church is doing. We, we, we could never go on a mission trip and we just don't really have enough time to do family devotions. And the reason is because each of our kids is in two sports and doing music lessons and doing Boy Scouts and doing all these different things. Just ask the question, are you too busy? This myth, you'll get a very mini rant from me right now. I have a much longer one stored away. 
that we, 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 we have an idol of busyness in our culture. It's one of our status symbols. Oh, I'm so busy. You know, oh, how you been doing? Oh, just really, really busy. Not as busy as me. We've been really, really busy. Sort of like you're not important unless you're really, really busy. So much of what we are busy with is stuff we choose. You are not as busy as you think you are. There are things in your life that you could instantly cut off and be available for. But ask yourself the question, am I so busy chasing money that I am unavailable for things that God is doing through his church, eternal things, that I'm available for my family, for for the responsibility, the, the core responsibility God has called me to, that I'm unavailable to even ask the question, what might God call me to do? And then a third question, and this question is, am I unwilling to give generously if it costs me something that I love? Do you find yourself in a situation where you say, well, I give, but I give when everything else is already taken care of. Generosity is meant to cost us something. And again, I know this is sort of a rabbit hole that's very difficult. Just like if you're chasing money, you'll never get to the end of that. That's just, that's an empty hole. At the same time, if you chase the idea of, well, how do I live in a way that I couldn't possibly give anymore? That's going to be something that you're always chasing. So if you look at it and you say, you know what, um, we're, we're a family and we have three cars and we don't need three cars, we could get by and so we need to get rid of one of the cars. So, so, so it's like, all right, maybe God is calling you to do that. But then you could always look at it and say, well, well but technically we, we could probably get by with one car. It would take a lot of coordinating, but, but we could do it. So you know what, we're going to get rid of two cars and have just one car. And you could say, well, you know what, a lot of people in the world don't even have a car. We got bikes. Well, all right, we'll, we'll get rid of the other car. And do we really need these bikes? I mean, after all, we could sell the bikes and we could get, and do we really need, I hope you get my point. I don't want, and I don't think that what Jesus is doing here, Jesus doesn't really bring guilt into this equation. I don't think that Jesus' goal for us is to be guilt-stricken over the fact that we have more stuff than other people. We live in a country where we just have more stuff than other people. The question is not, could you possibly give more? You know what the answer to that question is? Yes. It's always going to be yes. The question is, what is God calling you to do? And if your life is not, at least from time to time, being disrupted by what God is calling you to do, you're probably not listening well enough. Jesus is the king, and he's a disruptive king. He disrupts our lives, and he disrupts our finances. So my goal isn't for you to look at your lives and say, oh, I feel so bad because I could give more. That's useless. What's useful is if you say, I am going to genuinely go before God and try to figure out what he's calling me to do. And if I feel like I can't do it, I'm going to start looking at the things that I have that I don't really need. And I'll I'll just, again, this is just advice. This is not a command. This is pastoral advice. I'd say if you're looking to cut so that you can give more, start with your house and with your hobbies. And I don't mean get rid of your house. I mean, there is a never-ending amount of stuff we can do to furnish and, and improve our homes. Start by thinking about that and start by thinking about your hobbies. Say, you know what? I'm using a lot of money on this hobby, on cars, on golf, on whatever it may be. And frankly, that would be an easy thing to cut out so I could follow God's lead and give to things that will last forever. There's a third question up on the screen. We're actually going to leave this question up as we sing these next two songs, as we take in this reality, because we want to, in a spirit of worship, ask ourselves this question. 
Am I unwilling to be generous if it costs me something? Or am I willing to take the risk? Am I willing to step forward and take the risk that anything I do in faith, any sacrifice I make will pay off because of the reward that God will bring? And with that said, I'm going to invite you to stand up as we look to respond in thoughtful worship to what we've heard this morning.